Hello, my name is Conrad Kinch and this is Send 3 and 4 pence, a semi-regular podcast about gaming, books and the law as we shamble hopefully towards eternity. Hello and welcome to this episode of Send 3 and 4 pence. Today we're going to have an overview of The Wolves of God, the latest RPG from Kevin Crawford of Cine Nomine Press and something from the mailbag. The Wolves of God is a RPG set in Anglo-Saxon England prior to the Norman Conquest, so somewhere between 700 and uh, 700 AD and the turn of the first millennium. If you're wondering where you've heard of uh, Kevin Crawford's name before, he's the author of the excellent sci-fi RPG Stars Without Number, as well as the one-player, one-DM RPG Scarlet Heroes. Wolves of God was financed by Kickstarter and has been released to Kickstarter backers on PDF with a hard copy to be available in the not-too-distant future. Um, my thanks to uh, Owen for letting me have a look at his copy, uh, which I was very impressed with. The PDF weighs in at 337 pages and is extensively illustrated. The art is not exactly to my taste, um, seeming a bit digital for my liking, but it does its job well. The game itself is based on basic D&D with a character generation and skill system reminiscent of uh, Mega Traveler. The rule set is lean and anyone who's familiar with any of the D20 systems written in the last 40 years or so will find themselves very quickly at home here. There are four classes, Warrior, Saint, which is the cleric equivalent, Galdorman, uh, which I'm probably mispronouncing, which is the magic user, and Adventurer, who is more of a generalist. Now, one thing that immediately strikes the reader is the style in which uh, Wolves of God is written. It's written from the perspective of an 8th century monk who is instructing you on how to play the Saxon game of RPGs which are quite sleek and simple and not at all like the complex games played by the perfidious and cunning Welsh. I was sceptical of this approach at first and I thought it rapidly become uh, cringe-inducing, but it actually works rather well. Um, What it does is firmly embed learning about the setting in learning the mechanics of the game. The background is very much implicit in the text, which makes it much easier to get into the mindset of an 8th century Saxon. In fact, while there's a lot of background material included, it's usually with rules for doing things and doing things that player characters would be expected to want to do. Um, There are actually only two short pages of background for players to read. Almost everything else is in the rules. Um, For example, there's a a description of what are called great feasts, which is a, a particular kind of feast hosted by the local lord. Now this could be a moment to talk about lordship and the performance of lordship, sex roles and material culture in Anglo-Saxon England and I'm sure that plenty of ink has been spilled in multiple master theses on the subject and that would have been interesting but what is more interesting still is when you present that as a means by which player characters gain glory, how they get quests from uh, aldermen or lords and where they show off their skills to gain experience points um, so that the feast itself is presented as a, uh, an, a game encounter in which the player characters will make moves and other people will make moves in that environment and things will happen as a result. Um, 
it's slick, it's well presented with tables so that the GM can create his own feasting, gift-giving ceremony um, off the cuff, but it also outlines how the players can get hoodwinked into undertaking a perilous quest without warning. Um, so sure, it's cool to play being play it being at Saxons, but this makes what could be just, oh, well, just have some free role play amongst yourselves into an engine of story and drama and things will happen because of what, what occurred at the feast. And I think focusing on that aspect of Saxon life and gamifying it um, is was a very, very clever design choice. And I think the author has made his game richer as a result. Looking at the rules, there's a lot of familiar stuff here. You roll 3d6 for your characteristics. You will then roll for or pick a background which could be churl churchman noble etc each background comes with a skill package which you can customize skills are rated from zero to four you roll 2d6 and add your skill hoping to hit a target number which is usually seven um, this system or some variation of this system has been used by kevin crawford before in scarlet heroes and i believe it dates back to mega traveler um but uh, regardless, it seems to be a fairly robust mechanic and one that does the job. Um, once you have some stats and skills, you pick a class. Warriors, obviously enough, are good at fighting. Saints are holy men and women, while Galdermann use magic. Now, there are two very important things about classes in Wolves. Uh, firstly, their skills are tied deeply into the setting. The warrior is a better fighter than the other characters, but he's also better much better fighting with a friend in a shield wall. Uh, there's a skill called gifting, which is a good example of this. Eighth century Saxon England does not have shops. There, there is no, there's very little. So even if the players do find treasure, there's very little to spend it on. So trade is done by gifting and barter. Um, so you need to have a, a, a knowledge of what you're trading, what you're trading for, and the social context in which you're doing it. Um, so one of the one of the things that that uh, Kevin Crawford highlights is that a man can put you in his debt by giving you a particularly good gift, which then puts you under a social obligation to oh I don't know, go kill a monster that is um, is uh, terrorizing his village, and uh, that is uh, that is something to be. Uh, aware of but it's also a way that Crawford has embedded the skill system in the setting but also in such a way that it, it drives um, actual play so secondly uh, characters gain levels by uh, gathering glory and glory is uh, can be lost by gaining shame now wolves caps out at level 10 which as wizards um uh, research has shown us most people don't play Dungeons and Dragons beyond tenth level anyway. It's 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 a vanishingly small number of people play be ab above that level, um. So it, it is, you know, it's it's made for short to medium campaigns. I think, um, but uh, so you gain glory points, which are effectively experience, by uh doing certain things, and what you gain glory for is determined by your class so a warrior will gain glory from fighting mighty foes but will lose it for breaking his word or uh, running away from a fight that he started so there's no shame in running away from an ambush 
But if you leg it from a jewel, let's say that you called someone out in, um, that's that's massive shame. Um, now your shame cannot take, you can't lose levels as a result of shame, but you will have to, uh, to gain more glory to make up for that deficit if you wish to, uh, to grow your character. Saints gain glory from risking danger to help the weak, or by converting powerful heathens. They lose glory by striking another human being with intent to harm them or by betraying their vows. An interesting wrinkle here uh, is that the, the warrior and the galderman can avoid um, shame by ensuring that no one learns uh, about whatever despicable act that, that, they, that they've done. So that there's, a, there's a utility from their perspective for silencing witnesses. The saint cannot because he cannot conceal his wrongdoing from God. Um, which I thought was uh, quite clever. Combat in wolves is quite deadly. Healing is slow and the average character will have uh, at first level five to seven hit points. And a couple of things that really struck me about how combat is structured while cleaving very much closely to standard Dungeons and Dragons um, is that most weapons are spears rather than swords, which is something that, as a weapons nerd, I was hugely impressed with. Swords are the iconic fantasy weapon, but spears are the classic weapon of the Dark Ages, if you read your Beowulf. Um, spears are much more available than swords, costing uh, one sixteenth of what the cheapest swords cost, and having uh, near-identical mechanics. Um, though, interestingly enough, not all is lost for sword bearers, as even possessing a sword confer confers a point of what's called splendor. And splendor, uh, you gain splendor by having sort of richly decorated uh, objects and giving great gifts and, um, you know, just essentially being a, 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 a person of consequence and, uh, and showing off. But it's tied into the sort of the Anglo-Saxon uh, warrior ethos because it has, each point of splendor allows you to re-roll a die in combat. Um, so there is a, a utility, you know, there aren't, you, you can't go find or, or buy enchanted swords. Well, you can probably find them, but you can spend your money on richly decorated goods because those will give you splendor and that will make you more effective which is sort of tying the mechanics into the setting yet again. Um, another interesting mechanic is shock. Most weapons have a shock value of one or two and an associated armor class. So, for example, a spear has a shock value of two and an AC of 13. And if you are in a combat, you will take shock damage equal to the value of the weapon, even if your opponent doesn't hit, if your AC is below the threshold. So this means that armoured fighters enjoy an advantage over unarmoured ones and that combat is a sudden and traumatic experience. You want to, uh, if you're caught on the hop without your shield or without armour, you want to end the fight as quickly as possible. Um, it's a, a, sudden, uh, a sudden thing. But shock can be avoided by wearing armour, by carrying a shield. There are uh, sort of manoeuvres that you can do. Um, which, uh, you know, by fighting with a friend and forming a shield wall, which will benefit your AC, but will also protect you from shock damage. Um, and th that measure allows you to avoid shock completely. So combat is deadly, but it's not trivial. And there are ways to mitigate the lethality. 
um, including an interesting mechanic called weird, which is essentially, weird is essentially an Anglo-Saxon term for fate or destiny, and it's role for in character generation, and it, it essentially sort of is a, your character will do this thing, or your character will die by the hand of a one hand, you know, uh, of a one-eyed man, or something like that. And if a character is about to die without having fulfilled his weird, there is a chance that he will survive. Now, that is not certain. So you can't sort of, if, if your weird is that, you know, you will be slain by a bear, you can't go diving into battle with the Welsh because none of the Welsh will be bears. Um, if you trifle with destiny, uh, you, you can't expect your weird to save you. But it is, it is a, 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 a way of, of mitigating the lethality just a bit. There are setting specific rule systems that deal with domain play and things like cattle raiding and how to deal with retainers. Uh, the domain play rules look, will look very familiar to anyone who's played D&D and they emphasise the fact that the characters in Wolves have come from somewhere, have families and have social roles. So characters who have domains are going to need a steady stream of income to maintain their follower loyalties. Uh, their, their followers' loyalty and grow their power, which is all the more reason to go adventuring, frankly. Uh, and uh, I think it would, be a, um, it would be a very foolish dungeon master who didn't see any kind of domain as an endless uh, series of scenario ideas. Um, domain play is also one aspect of the game where female characters can really shine. Um, given the managerial role they played in Anglo-Saxon society, I mean... Uh, uh, the uh, the lady of the house had a legal right to possession of all keys that existed in the house and managed the finances so that is uh, th that that's that's something that that can be uh, could be used by a canny player um actually i was quite surprised not to find any rules for childbirth or child rearing in wolves particularly given the lethality of the system and the sort of the slower pace of the game um, and the possibilities for domain play because this was the, the, the sort of the building a dynasty aspect of Pendragon was something that we always enjoyed when we were playing it and I thought that that, that was a that was a missed trick there I think that, that could have been done a bit better. Um, the magic rules are similar to standard D&D but the spell list is radically different. Galderman is a fixer and a trickster more than a, a fireball-chucking pyromaniac. Um, Galderman spells allow them to bless fields, safeguard a young retainer against specific kinds of harm, defend against fairies, heal diseases, or um, prevent two warriors from feuding. Now, these are all powerful spells in their way, but not in the way that Dungeons & Dragons characters usually expect spells to be powerful. I mean, take the last spell, for example. It doesn't make the two warriors forget their enmity. It just robs them of the motivation to do anything about it. And a canny player could buy a lot of influence in the court of a local alderman with that spell. Um, looking at the spells, I think the Galderman character is going to suit thoughtful players who like to problem solve and plan um, rather than the sort of uh, the superpowered sorcerer of D&D 5e. The saint and uh, divine magic I think will suit more impulsive players 
Um, I mean, just look at St. Augustine. Uh, Saints' lives are rarely easy or simple, but um, they gain access to all the miracles available uh, at, at, at character creation, but they have to earn the power to do them. So they can't use violence to solve their problems or they'll lose their powers immediately. Um, the way they, they gain that power is healing the sick and defending the weak. But the beauty of that is that a saint could easily f- find himself having to defend his enemies if they're wronged. Um, he has access, or he or she has access to a, a social support uh, network through the church, wherever they go. But they can't really own anything. Um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of possibilities here. Again, particularly for uh, female characters who... Uh, aren't interested in uh, playing a, a shield maiden uh, or a spear maiden, I think is what they're, they're called in this, um, because th- I think there's some really intriguing possibilities here. I mean, people complain about the D&D cleric being dull, but in Wolves of God, there is no guarantee that a saint is going to have a long life, but it's certainly going to be eventful um, because you've got this character with some very substantial powers um that is that owes loyalty to a a hierarchy that the other uh, player characters are part of but not immediately beholden to um but also that that don't uh that, that have universal duties put on them so uh, a warrior might just have a duty to an alderman but uh, the saint has a duty to everyone, which I think is going to make for a, a, a somewhat exciting life. Um, but enough about the uh, characters. What about the adventures? There are going to be a lot of different scenarios that are open to uh, wolves, DMs, cattle raiding, undertaking missions for local aldermen or abbots, trying to build a, a power base for the players. And there are some very well-written sections on how to run a game how to run a game based on political conflict uh, and on uh, involving natural disasters, famine, plague, that sort of thing, um, and how to generate adventure ideas uh, against a background of, of that kind of conflict. Although I was amused to discover that natural disasters also included the Welsh. Um, <laughs> but uh, actually, now that I think of it, uh, given that St. Patrick uh, was around the 5th century, it wouldn't be beyond the bounds of possibility that Irish raiders could be harrying the coastline so that there's uh, there's some possibilities there. Or Vikings, actually, now that I think of it. Um, what strikes me about the section on adventures is that the advice is so good. It reminded me of the advice that John Tynes wrote for Cthulhu D20 in that both focused very much on play as it happens and encouraging the players to put their stamp on the game. I won't go too much into it because you should buy the book, but one idea that really hit me was that the GM should only ever plan one session ahead and at the end of the session he should ask the players what they want to do and then they should go do that. I wish I'd had the courage to do that as a young DM rather than fretting over building some sort of Swiss watch-like game setting. Um, because I think it's a, it's a very uh, practical and uh, piece of advice that sort of limits the um, hurdles that can be put in your way of actually playing a game um, and gets everybody to the table a bit more quickly, which I think is uh, all to the good. Um, 
but uh, speaking of practicalities there are lots of tables to help you generate minsters settlements adventures and the 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 book is absolutely stuffed with that kind of those kind of resources there's no uh, there's no lack of actual gameable material here um another aspect uh lest we think that this is a, a dull historical game is the idea of casters and arxes um these are the remnants of Roman Britain, built in stone, wreathed in mist and mystery and full of traps for the unwary. And there's something uncanny about casters and the rules of time and space don't quite seem to work like they should in there. Arxes are, so casters are the remains of Roman towns above ground and arxes are related, but they're magical fortresses built deep underground by Roman wizards to hold off the waves of Saxons that were threatening them uh, at the time. Uh, now, these are obviously, you know, sort of 100, 250 year, years old. Um, but uh, their uh, arxes are home to ghostly legionaries, surviving pagan cults, demons, weird creatures, and all the sort of stuff that you normally find in fantasy dungeons. Now, I thought this was a very clever idea because it would have been quite trite to lean on fairies and England's pagan heritage to provide the magical element for the game. Now, you can still do that. There's rules for fairies and, uh, you know, the, 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 the she and that sort of thing, but... I thought using Lost Romans as a source of weirdness was just a genius move. Um, you know, uh, I say, Alfred, shall we venture into the caster where ghostly gladiators battle to the death a thousand times a day and all is built on a grid like a chessboard and there are things called shops? Madness, I tell you. Um, and because... Anything that remains in an arcs is warped by ma the magic within. There's no telling what's going to crawl out of there uh, or where still run into you when you have to go uh, crawl in yourself. Um, so I, I, I think magical Roman dungeons, it's just a great idea. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, see, to, to, to seeing what, what, what we can do with it. Um, but in conclusion... I was very, very impressed by Wolves of God. It's a lean, elegant RPG, laser focused on providing an engaging uh, play experience at the table. The author, Kevin Crawford, has clearly done his research, but he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. There's a lot of background here, but it's embedded in resources aimed at helping the DM get a game to the table and to his players. And this game will be di different from standard D&D, while still retaining the mechanical familiarity that will allow gamers to jump straight in. There are lots of D&D type games, but Wolves of God, um, which I've started calling Wolves rather than the acronym for obvious reasons, um, uh, manages to use the same chassis to deliver something that even just at a reading feels different. Um, the core game is quite slim, but the book is stuffed with stuff for the GM to generate material for play. The index is good, and if the artwork isn't to my taste, um, it it does the job um by the way you may be wondering about the significance of the name the wolves of god apparently that was the name given to the invading saxons by the romano britons in previous centuries so would i recommend wolves um well i suppose the answer to that one is a resounding maybe myself i'm really excited about it the setting is unique the um, mechanics are broadly speaking familiar and the potential is endless 
I, I like the concrete descriptions of how domain play works and the possibilities that that presents. And I haven't been this excited about an RPG in quite a while. My head is fizzing with Viking raids, delving into ghostly Roman towns and possibly mounting a, a, a rescue mission to the slave port of Dublin. Um, to say nothing of building monasteries, playing politics or simply glutting the ravens on the field of battle. Um, but if you want a straight up D&D game, this probably isn't for you. A lot of the things uh, that are missing from Wolves are things that D&D players have come to expect. So easy magical healing, shops and a cash-based economy. Uh, also, orcs, gnolls and elves and halflings are conspicuous by their, by their absence. Um, though there are rules for playing a Welshman, which is a bit like playing an elf, I suppose. Um, but if you want those things, Wolves of God probably isn't for you. Um, but myself, I think it is a, a simple, quite bounded role-playing game that uh, presents a lot of very intriguing possibilities. I'm very grateful to Owen for the chance to, uh, to, to read his copy, and I'm looking forward to uh, having the chance to buy one of my own. Hello, Conrad. How you doing, mate? Um, been enjoying your podcast, man. I'm always a sucker for a little bit of Robin of Hood chat. Um, the uh, recollections of Robin of Sherwood have cropped up a few times on Anchor before, and I'm glad to glad to hear a, another person talking about it now. And the character you were trying to think of is Nazir with the two scimitars. Awesome dude that he was. We we loved that guy back in the day, and to be fair, still do now. Also enjoyed your chat about miniatures. Uh, I don't know. You're probably well familiar with Perry Miniatures. They're the uh, the Perry twins who used to work for Citadel. They do some awesome historical sculpts and uh, they come in at a similar price, around 40 figures for 20 quid, I believe. I don't own any, but I've eyed them up many a time. Uh, Colin, thank you very much for that. Um, yes, definitely a fan of Robin. The Hooded Man. Do do. Yes, that, that, that program made a, a very big um, impression on a, a young Kinch. And I hope uh, to do something uh, Robin Hood ish in an RPG or possibly a skirmish warbit game context before too long. Thanks again. Hey Conrad, Jason here. Just want to say I enjoyed your episode on violence and RPGs, and I agree with you. I do think you, you're, the way you ended is important. It's okay to have that just escapism sometimes. You, you know, not every session has to be super serious, and it's okay to have some silly stuff. It's definitely okay to have that mindless violence occasionally because that's what people are looking for sometimes. The beer and pretzels game, right? Um, but I do think your points are well made, and I think your points make a deeper, more interesting campaign and a better game in the long run. So I, I definitely would think that mindless violence is more the beer and pretzels, and then but a serious game, which, which is probably more satisfying in the end, will we'll take in account the things you're talking about. So I, I think it was a great episode, and you had some great examples and great ideas in there. So thank you for that. So in case you want to hear me ramble more, uh, most of the games I've been playing lately, actually, you know, with other gems and, and you know, do involve morale. So morale is, 
is being used more than maybe you think it is. Well, at least in the circles I run in, morale is being used, so that's a good thing. I, I think, you, you know, mortality is important. So, like you're talking about in, in your GURPS game, it's, it's important for the characters to have a very real chance of dying and, and very real serious consequences for combat. You know, we have that even in BX. We have, you know, it's kind of scary and we're, you know, tentative to go into combat. And I think when you look at something like RuneQuest or Rollmaster, it's even more, or Warhammer, <laughs> Warhammer First Edition, you know, it, all that's ramped up because your characters die in a heartbeat in those games. I don't care what level you are. So, yeah, I think playing systems like that also help ramp up the, the danger. So, just thought. Jason, I'm very glad you enjoyed the episode. Um... And I'm glad to hear that morale is being used um, in, in RPGs. Um, I think, I suppose, you, you sort of, you never really see things at your, outside your own little circle. Um, but uh, I do think it's, it's, it's an important thing. Um, and uh, I'm very glad to hear that it's, uh, it's seeing some use. Thanks very much. And I'm glad you enjoyed the podcast. Hello, Conrad, lonely adventurer. Just wanted to say welcome to Anchor. I uh, enjoyed the Scarlet Heroes review. I downloaded a copy, looking forward to reading it. Uh, it also reminded me that I was very interested in Red Tide after hearing about it on Fear of a Black Dragon, and then, as per usual, I completely forgot about it. So I've actually written down a note to to check that out. I hear it's a great, uh, great little source book, and uh, glad you're enjoying The Witcher. I seem to be the only one who is not. <laughs> um, I will say Henry Cavill's, uh, or rather Henry Cavill's rump, is uh, killing it in those tight leather breeches, so it's got that going for it. Uh, but I just bounced off. Uh, I had the same problem with The Expanse. I didn't care for the pilot, but then I came back to it several months later and devoured all four seasons and can't wait for more. So perhaps that will be the case with uh, The Witcher as well. Uh, I'm really enjoying the podcast. Looking forward to more. Talk to you soon. Hey, Conrad. This is Minion, also known as Rob, also known as Minion or Rob. And I just wanted to call very simply to say that I listened to both of your episodes and they were fantastic really 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 well executed i have nothing to add i bow down to you and worship your uh image well done i look forward to hearing more episodes from you sir have a nice weekend man bye goodness gracious rob um there is uh not an awful lot i can say to that except uh thank you very much and please stop or i'll get a big head uh thanks again Hey, Conrad. Interesting episode on criminal and civil law. I appreciate hearing the Irish perspective, and I appreciate learning about biscuits. Thank you very much. I look forward to your next episode. You have been listening to Send Three and Fourpence, a semi-regular podcast about gaming, books, and the law. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, like, and subscribe, and most importantly, tell your friends that you liked it. And if you didn't like this podcast, please like, share and subscribe. And most importantly, tell your friends that you liked it. Thank you and goodbye.